Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hey everyone, this is Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the Center for Faith and Culture. We hope you're enjoying your summer. We at the Center for Faith and Culture are hard at work on season three of the podcast, which we hope to begin releasing in August. But to help tide you over until then, we wanted to give you a special bonus episode this summer. So here's the background for today's episode. We at the CFC host something called the CFC Mentorship Program. And this mentorship program is designed to mentor a small group of students interested in thinking about cultural issues in light of biblical Christianity. And at one of the spring mentorship meetings, Dr. Andrew Davison joined us over Zoom to deliver a lecture titled, A Religion of Little Things, Christianity and Finitude. Dr. Davison is the Starbridge Associate Professor in Theology and Natural Sciences at Cambridge University, so you're going to want to hear what he has to say. Two final things before we jump into today's bonus episode. Number one, if this mentorship program sounds interesting to you, good news, we are now accepting applications for the 2022 to 2023 uh, academic year. You can learn more about the mentorship program at cfc.sebts.edu, or you can click the link in our show notes. Second thing, we really, really value your feedback on the Christ and Culture podcast. And so as we're working on season three right now, we have a brief survey on our website. If you take a few minutes, go fill that out. Uh, As our thanks for doing so, you'll be entered to win a stack of books Again, you can find that survey at cfc.scbts.edu or, again, click the link in our show notes. So there we go. Those are the caveats. We hope you enjoy this lecture from Dr. Davison. Thank you very much. I'm going to open with some provocative words from Karl Barth. We must divest ourselves of the idea that limitation implies something derogatory or even a kind of curse or affliction. Finitude can instead be viewed as a mighty, beneficent promise. While praising limitation and encouraging us to embrace our human finitude as a mighty, beneficent promise, these are pretty startling suggestions. In this lecture, I want to contribute to your session, your series, on being human by looking at being human in terms of finitude or being finite. There's gonna be some theology and some practical concerns, touching on some aspects of pastoral care, perhaps certainly something about apologetics. And I hope that that will fit into this project on theology and praxis. I want to extend my thanks, say how really grateful I am to join you today to thank Dr. Ken Keithley and Benjamin Quinn for their invitation and uh, to thank also Jordan Stefaniak uh, for all he's done to arrange today. Not everything when you're speaking from one continent to another goes quite as smoothly uh, and uh, as it has done uh, with him. And I'm really grateful for the time that's uh, put in. And I might also add that I'm really grateful for this excellent podcast. But let me get to the meat of it. So I opened with one of the great Protestant writers of the 20th century, perhaps the greatest, Karl Barth. And um, here is one 
of, I think, an under underappreciated great Catholic writer, G.K. Chesterton, who wrote a fittingly, uh, beautifully about finitude and Christmas. And it's where the title of this talk comes from, his suggestion that Christianity is a religion of little things. So he's talking about the visit of the shepherds to the infant Jesus. The shepherds had found their shepherd in a cave under the earth. The population had been wrong in many things, but they had not been wrong in believing that holy things could have a habitation and that divinity need not disdain the limits of time and space. The faith becomes, in more way than one, a religion of little things. What's going on here? Why would Chesterton praise limits and celebrate little things? Well, I think I can tell you what he's not doing. He's not buying into that enthusiasm for woundedness and diminishment that was so popular in the liberal theology of the end of the 20th century. That theology was still in the air at seminary when I was here at the turn of the millennium, although personally my interests were more in Aquinas and patristics and that revival of orthodoxy called radical orthodoxy at the time that was so strong in the Cambridge faculty. But in my theological college, there was a great deal of enthusiasm for woundedness and diminishment in a rather bleak late 20th century way. And I'm absolutely certain that that's not what Chesterton is saying when he's enthusiastic about uh, finitude and smallness. Rather, Chesterton is enamoured of finitude as form, and he is enthusiastic about limits in terms of characterfulness. I'm not going to spend too much time, as I say, reading quotations, but I can't resist to give you a little bit more Chesterton, since he's such a fantastic writer on finitude. And I think he had a, rec a sense of that himself. He recognised that finitude was important to him, because the passage that I'm about to read comes, in fact, from his autobiography. So from his autobiography, page uh, 32. All my life I have loved edges and the boundary line that brings one thing sharply against another. All my life I have loved frames and limits, and I will maintain that the largest wilderness looks even larger seen through a window. I have a pretty taste in abysses and bottomless chasms and everything else that emphasises a fine shade of distinction between one thing and another. If you don't already know Chesterton, I would suggest his book Heretics, his book Orthodoxy, The Everlasting Man, and indeed his autobiography. And I can't resist saying as, a, uh, as an Anglican, noticing that just as it was the Church of England who formed the greatest Roman Catholic thinker of the 19th century, John Henry Newman, to be the man that he was, so also it was the Church of England who formed Chesterton to be the man that he was. And his early books were written in his Anglican phase, and I think that that's uh, what stuck with him the rest of his life. So what do I mean by finitude? Well, this is a lecture about finitude and being finite. And my emphasis is going to be on approaching finitude and human finitude in terms of particularity, in terms of being the sort of thing that we are, in terms of that love of form and boundedness that we find in Chesterton. I can claim to have thought quite a bit about finitude as it was the subject of my PhD thesis, 10 or what goodness, 15 years ago now. And I want to acknowledge the wonderful supervision I received from my supervisor, Catherine Pickstock. And why would I want to work on finitude? I think this might be quite a good way in to the subject. Well, it was partly out of academic provocation, partly, I suppose, out of a kind of apologetic interest and partly out of a personal or pastoral dimension. So academically, I've been reading as an undergraduate. I've been a scientist, uh, as Jordan said, and then I 
came here to read theology and I came across the words finitude and finite all the time in the theology that I was reading as an undergraduate. But hardly anything was said to explain what people meant by that. And sometimes it seemed to have good associations, but quite often it had bad associations. And I wanted to try and get that clear. Uh, secondly, what I did read about finitude was often rather gloomy. And I'm a, rather an upbeat kind of um, Christian. I think the, the gospel is, is good news um, and should ultimately make us cheerful. And our theology ought ultimately to be a source of joy. But what had been written about finitude was largely from the 60s and 70s under the influence of existentialism, particularly um, Heidegger, and I didn't find it very palatable. Um, it was rather gloomy. It tended to associate finitude just with death or fallenness. And in contrast, as I say, my disposition was to see the world more as Chesterton did and to be delighted in the particularity of things and not to concentrate so much on the fact that things perish, like the existentialists, but to celebrate how it is that they exist. And I suppose even that they exist at all uh, should be a cause of great wonder and joy. So that's supposed to be the apologetic angle, trying to say, no, Christianity's got something really special and important to say about finitude. Um, so it seems that, uh, that writers could be dismissive of finitude or assume that Christianity would be. Came across what I thought was a horrific line in Hegel's lectures on the philosophy of religion, where he says that finitude, finitude of creatures, is a moment in God himself, though to be sure it is a disappearing moment. That seemed to be all wrong. I mean, creatures aren't uh, just some... Uh, banishing part of the of the life of God. God's more transcendent than that, and uh, creatures are more special to God than that. And yet, we come across a whole host of critics who assumed that Christianity thought exactly that, that finite things were just to be dismissed. Uh, Nietzsche, Martha Nussbaum, uh, Jaspers, Don Cupid, uh, and others as well. Um, and then the final angle, I suppose, on why I was interested in finitude is just my own story, but a personal angle, and my sense of... Um, vocation that in my mid-20s there was just so much I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to be a medic and a pastor and an architect and um, that really brings you up short with your sense of finitude that basically you can't can't do all of those things or maybe one or two people have had a go but um, uh, I was I had to choose. I had to choose between good things and I was only finite and that got me uh, interested in finitude. Um, so it turns out that there's a very great deal that could be said about finitude, which I think is a rather pleasing paradox. Um, but I'm going to limit myself to just a few points, some which I might cover in more detail, some a little bit more I'll just indicate. Um, but I, I want to have enough to say that I want to leave you shortchanged in terms of material. Uh, but as much as I want to share what I see as insights, I also want to provoke you to your own thinking about finitude, um, the nature of finitude. Uh, and indeed to seeing the world in the light of the faith, because I think one of the main tasks of theology is to open our eyes to see the world uh, in a theological way. And I hope that what we think about together might um, help in thinking about the finitude of the world in a theological way. So my kind of take up messages are going to be finitude is about more than mortality. Finitude isn't the same as fallenness. Uh, finitude isn't imperfect, but in fact, it's the characteristic way in which creatures can be excellent. Uh, that finitude goes hand in hand with multiplicity and diversity, and that thinking about finitude can help us to assess our desires and discontentments from a Christian perspective and, and witness to that uh, in the world. So, okay, thoughts on the nature or features of finitude. Point one, it's okay to be finite. I really think that Christianity teaches us that it is okay to be finite. Creatures are finite, God is not, but creatures aren't supposed to be divine, 
and it's not a failing that they aren't divine. As Aquinas says, that which participates in being need not participate in every mode of being. So it's not a problem at all to be finite. In fact, the problem uh, would be pretending otherwise. It's not a problem that we're not everything. The problem would be aspiring to be everything or all. The finitude of creatures is part of the goodness of what God has created. And yes, of course, the world is fallen, but it's really important to notice that things were finite before the fall. So uh, finitude isn't fallenness, fallenness isn't finitude. Although unfortunately you come across that in plenty of writers and I've given you a quotation from Leonardo Boff there. The story of Genesis 1 is full of the finitude and particularity of things. So just think of all those references to things being created good according to their kinds. They're not everything, they're, this is this, that's that, and they're good by being this and that. Um, and when God redeems us, he doesn't make us infinite. Uh, indeed, to redeem us, God dignified us by taking up our finite nature. And of course, that's what Chesterton's putting his finger on in talking about the shepherds coming to the manger. So I think a really great angle on this uh, comes from Aquinas, and you're going to get lots of Aquinas uh, from me today. Um, to be finite is not to be everything. It's obviously to lack something. In fact, it's to lack almost everything. But his point is that not every kind of lack is a problem. And I want to fix in your minds his distinction between two different kinds of lack, to lack things negatively and to lack things privately. Uh, so a negative lack involves not having what isn't yours to have in the first place, what it doesn't belong to your nature to have. Whereas a privative lack involves not having something that would be yours to have, that makes for being the kind of thing that you have. I want to recognise that on this territory, theologians of disability will have a lot to say, uh, and not everything from the 13th century is going to sit well with everyone, but will with some. Um, but anyway, according to Aquinas, it's not a problem for me to lack wings, but it would be a problem for a bird to lack wings. For me, not having wings is a merely negative lack, whereas for a bird, it would be a privative lack. However, for Aquinas, not being able to laugh, perhaps not having a sense of humour, would be a privative lack because he takes it that it is integral to be a human being to, to be able to laugh and have, uh, have fun. Uh, he gets this from Aristotle. And in fact, it, rather charmingly, he uses it as one of his examples of what's distinctively human. It's the virtue of, or the characteristic of risibility, the ability to laugh. And he thinks that if we lack that, it would be a privative lack, like a bird lacking wings. So if finitude is about limitations uh, and intrinsically about not being everything, then that isn't a problem in itself. Most of what I lack, I lack only negatively. And I think it's useful to contrast this with what I think is a horrific passage from a, genera a generation later, a theologian, a generation later, um, a Brit or maybe a, a South Scot uh, called John Duns And he denied that there's this sense of limitations proper to the nature of a thing. He didn't think it was particularly significant for things to have a particular mode of being. Um, and we might think of uh, Sherlock Holmes style, the case of the wise dog. So basically, uh, Scotus thought that although dogs are not wise, we might dispute that, but he thinks that dogs are not wise. It's just better to be wise than not wise. And therefore, in violation of the nature of the dog, it will be better for it to become wise and not be a dog anymore than it would for it to remain as a dog. I'll give you the quotation. Whereas Aquinas, with his distinction between negative and, lack, uh, and privative lack, 
would say this is not a private lack in a dog. Dogs are great. They're great in a doggy kind of way. And God has no desire to stop the dog uh, being a dog. Uh, it's the job of wise things to be wise and of dogs to be dogs. Um, somewhere Scotus says um, God could take a porcupine and turn it into a wolf. Um, he's just kind of he's, a, he's into that kind of thing. Um, OK, so there are many problems in the world, but being finite is not one of them. Finitude is how God has made us to be, being this kind of thing, not that. Sin is a problem, but finitude isn't sin. Evil is a problem, but finitude is not evil. There are many kinds of lack in the world that are privative, as when someone lacks food or water or shelter, and we should attend to all of those very seriously. But the limitation of just being finite is not that kind of lack. And I think this helps us, uh, it's really useful uh, as we want to respond theologically to the sorts of worries and desires that we see in transhumanism, for instance. So the wish to modify the human person and the body to be more than human. So on the one hand, obviously, people have addressed needs in a technological way for centuries, and rightly so, and we can celebrate that. But we do need to discern between responding to privative and negative lack, between trying to, things put, trying to put things right that interfere with our humanity, so privative lack, and, which is very different, seeing our humanity as itself the problem, as if the things that we have as negative lacks, not having wings, so on, uh, were part of the problem. So I, uh, I just offer that as, a, I think, a really useful angle in discerning what's good about the desire to use technology to improve the human lot and especially to respond to problems and what would be about um, kind of despising our humanity and, and, and uh, not being at ease with being the, just basically the kind of things that we are. So a uh, second big point, um, I want to stress that what really interests me in finitude is being a particular kind of thing. Um, and I said that uh, quite a lot of what had been written about this in the 60s and 70s was very different from that. Um, and in fact, even to this day, if you see people writing about finitude, it's often associated with death and mortality. Um, and I want to say that I'm not, in, so, I'm not so interested in this talk, at least, in beginnings and ends as I am in the particularity of things. Now, I have written a book on palliative care with a um, palliative care physician. Um, I kind of got my vocation to the priesthood, I think, working in a, uh, in a hospice um, with the dying. I think it's incredibly important that the, the church does take beginning and end of life really seriously. Uh, but my talk here is about particularity. So I want to make a distinction between what I call finitude of existence and finitude of essence. And say almost everybody writes all the time about, if they do at all, about finitude of existence but I'm interested in the finitude of essence of being the kind of thing uh, that you are. Now, of course, much Christian theology, when it does come to talking about death, has been over the question of whether death is part of what we are, whether finitude of existence follows from our finitude of essence, or um, you know, whether to think about it as terms of a negative or, or privative lack. And I guess what it's worth, I'd follow Aquinas and many of the fathers in saying that the human being left to herself is mortal because of our animal nature, but that was never how it was supposed to be. Whether we say that's by a gift of grace, eating of the tree of life in the Genesis story, whatever, the human being was called to a life where humanity, that mortality would have been supplemented by God. And uh, in the resurrection, that's still what we're, uh, we're called to. But I'm not going to talk about beginnings and ends uh, more than that. So, OK, uh, third point. So first of all, I talked about it's OK to be finite. Then I talked about how I think that finitude of Essence is important, and people just tend to write about finitude of existence. 
Um, and then I want to say something about perfection of creatures. So it's not just okay to be finite. Finitude is part and parcel of the excellence of creatures, of what it means for God to perfect a creature um, as being perfectly the kind of creature that it's called to be. So I'm not, of course, saying that creatures can be or are perfect in the way that God is perfect. Of course not. Creatures are creatures. God is God. But I do want to uh, stress the point that it seems to me a mistake to think that we could line God and creatures up against one another. Um, There's a kind of concealed idolatry in thinking that a creature could ever be compared with God and a kind of concealed demotion of God uh, to think that such a contrast or comparison could be made. Um, All I want to say is that what it means for a creature to have a creaturely sort of perfection uh, is for it to live up to being the sort of thing that it is. It's all about, uh, you, you can kind of only judge the excellence of a creature according to being the kind of thing that it is. Um, Herbert McCabe said, it's no problem that, an, that a banana collapses when you sit on it, but it would be a problem if a deck chair collapsed when you sat on it. Uh, so you judge the excellence of a thing according to its uh, nature. So um, the excellence of humanity belongs to being the sort of thing that we are and living up to that and filling it out as God calls us to fill it out and redeems us and, and sanctifies us. Um, so as Aquinas puts it, uh, God's purpose isn't to make human beings other than human being. Uh, it's for them to be perfected according to what it means for us to be a human being. And as I think he rather charmingly puts it in one place, God's ways with human beings isn't like trying to make the number four bigger than it is, because then it wouldn't be the number four anymore. God wants to sort us out and perfect us, but according to the sort of thing that we are, according to our finitude. And that doesn't change what we are, but it does change how we are as human beings. And uh, so, for instance, God doesn't want to make us other than human, but God does want to extend and intensify, uh, for instance, as he puts it, being virtuous or wise. And again, it seems to me there are really helpful resources here when it comes to addressing our desires and aspirations and our discontents. So we're in Lent at the moment uh, in in the Church of England, and I think one of the great challenges of Lent, one of the tasks of Lent, is to examine your desires uh, in the light of the faith. Um, And we can ask ourselves, is our desire or discontent about the world trying to make us um, ill at ease with being human, devaluing our humanity, uh, encouraging us to wish that we were what we're not? I think there's a lot of of advertising, a lot of just bad stuff out there that basically runs down the human and makes us feel discontent to be the kind of things that we are. That seems to be a mistake. But there can be a desire or a discontent that's about wanting to be more perfectly the kind of creature that God wants us to be. And that seems to me a good aim. I think you'll have got from what I've said so far, this sense that there's a, that there's a strong account in Christianity of, of uh, creatures and createdness and finitude, uh, not being something to run down or despise. Um, but I think all the time in, in theological writing or out in the world, you come across the idea that the church does despise creaturehood, createdness, materiality, the body, finitude. Um, and I think it's really important uh, for us apologetically to be uh, putting that right. So um, Martha Nussbaum, I, I'm going to mention this um, really interesting essay called Transcending Humanity, where she thinks that Christianity is all about leaving your humanity behind. And she doesn't like that. Whereas I actually want to say that I'm her ally in that uh, and that, she, that Christianity is on her side. Um, but here's another quotation from her. She says, Christianity teaches about the particularity of persons, their flaws and their faults, their neutral idiosyncrasies, their very bodies, their history, 
are all accidental accretions from the world of sin to be disregarded in the context of redeemed love. Not so, I, I say, and we've got to you know, combat the idea that this is what Christianity is all about. Um, or Carl uh, Jaspers, uh, another, another philosopher. For Christian theology, there can no longer be any interest for constructive work in the world. The imperatives of Christ and his kingdom are imperatives from saints, as if man no longer had any situation of finitude in the world, any constructive work in the world and its realisation. Not so. The long legacy of this from the 20th century. Uh, and it's, we just need to point out that, Christ, that humanity has not been more defended, more celebrated as Christianity has waned in our cultures. Rather, it's when Christianity has waned, and I'm absolutely happy joining shoulder to shoulder with the other Abrahamic faiths, uh, that that's been when humanity has been uh, denigrated. And just to point out our great traditions of respecting human dignity, whether that's in the origins of international law or ideas of human rights, they have deeply theological uh, roots. And, you know, that's something for us to kind of show off more, I suppose. Um, and for us, the church, for the churches to show themselves delighting in the characterful excellence of things in nature, in art, music, literature, in human stories. Um, and I think not just kind of great her heroism and soaring achievements of culture, but also the church being on the side of homely things. And in fact, a, a Christian attention and support for home and family would be an important part, of, I think, of pushing back on this idea that we basically despise the human and the finite. Um, and we need to show that redemption isn't about transcending uh, finitude um, and that to have our hope fixed on what God promises isn't about despising the world that God has made. OK, so last couple of ideas, uh, finitude and variety. Um, I want to talk about the way in which finitude has gone hand in hand with ideas of variety and diversity in the Christian tradition, at least the kind of Thomist, Christian Platonist kind of uh, tradition that I come from. Uh, no finite thing is all, so finite things can be many. Diversity and finitude belong together. So God is finite, creatures are infinite. God is one, creatures are many. God is simple, creatures are complex. Uh, and as my PhD uh, supervisor once said, commenting on my thesis one day, diversity is the complement that finitude makes to infinitude, which I think is a great line. Diversity is the complement that finitude makes to infinitude. And there's a nice long quotation there from Aquinas about saying, well, because of the creatures in the world are finite, they have to be many in order to better display the perfections of God as, much, as best they can. And another thing that he says um, is that it's a good of the universe and it's a good that things are finite and many because the supreme good of the universe uh, as, as a creation is found in interrelation and interaction. So he says the, in, the universe has a whole that's more perfect and greater than the sum of the perfections of its parts taken individually. Um, and one really important good of the universe is, is cooperation uh, and diversity and finitude are what allow for the good, for instance, of charitable action and cooperation. Cooperation and charity require diversity, which itself requires finitude. So in a world where diversity is, is obviously and rightly really important, we can point to the deep roots in Christian writing about nature of creation and finitude that is part and parcel and integral of a world that has, God has made to be full of finite things that there's this diversity and interrelation um, and I guess right I'm going to end with uh, ideas of plenitude and contentment um, 
I want to close with the idea that contentment and simplicity, which are so much part of our traditions, uh, traditions as, Christian, as Christians, we might think um, of the witness of the monastic uh, orders, for instance, but uh, also I think of the, the way in which the Reformation was in a way trying to help every Christian to live up to the calling uh, of, of the religious, of, of monks and nuns and so on, um, and an interest in, um, in, kind of in simplicity and, and contentment. So remember that I opened with Bart. We must divest ourselves of the idea that limitation implies, implies something derogatory or even a kind of curse or affliction. Finitude can instead be viewed as a mighty, beneficent promise. So I realise that I'm naturally inclined to look at all of this stuff in rather a metaphysical way, but there are practical dimensions to it too. One consequence of a Christian sense of the rightness of finitude as part of the world that God has created good, even very good, might be to resist the idea that the better thing, the thing to be aimed for, is always larger, newer, more expensive, more stuff. Um, and it might be about taking pride in what we have, in caring for and preserving the things that we have that make for life, rather than just always buying into um, that aspect of the economy that's intrinsically built on dissatisfaction. And of course, that will be better for the environment too. Now, none of that is about stifling the aspirations of those who are uh, deprived or held back. So when I talk about contentment, I'm not trying to put people in their place. I'm absolutely about responding to uh, privative lack, but I'm addressing basically people like myself who have enough and more than enough. There are privative lacks and we should not rest in addressing them and seeking to address them, especially among the poorest people, but not every lack is a privative lack and I can get by without just always having more stuff, bigger stuff, shinier stuff. Uh, and it's easy to look at that in, term, in financial terms, economic terms, but I think basically it's a deeper disposition of heart at work here. And I'm going to conclude with what I think is a rather beautiful poem that on a couple of places touches on finitude by Louis McNeese called Ode. I don't know much about McNeese. He was, um, he was at Merton College, Oxford, where I was as an undergraduate, lived in the 1920s, 30s, I think. Um, <clears throat> anyway, he, here I think he is addressing his wife. And you too, my love, my limit, so palpable and your hair shot with red. I do not want a hundred wives or lives any more than I want to be too well read or to have money like the sand or ability like the hydra's heads to flicker the tongues of self-engendering power. I want a sufficient sample, the exact and framed balance of definite masses, the islanded hour. I would pray off from my son the love of that infinite which is too greedy and too obvious, let his absolute, like any four-walled house, be put up decently. I don't know whether he was writing that out of a Christian faith, but if he was, then I celebrate it. And frankly, if he wasn't, I celebrate it too and say, well, let's do at least as well as he did uh, in that beautiful vision of, um, I think the invocation of a wife there, I don't want a hundred wives, uh, one is enough because it's you. Um, I want a sufficient sample, the exact and framed balance of definite masses, the islanded hour. I would pray off from my son the love of that infinite, which is too greedy and too obvious. Let his absolute, like any four-walled house, be put up decently.
Thanks again for listening to today's bonus episode with Dr. Andrew Davison. As always, give us a five-star rating, brief review at Apple Podcasts. Doing that small step goes a long way in helping us spread the word about the Christ and Culture podcast. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.